children are leaving, uh, if you'd like to open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 18 through 23 this morning. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 23, as we continue our study through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. As you can see on the screen, I've entitled this series, The Unbreakable Chain of Salvation. And this refers to the main theme of this letter, and really of the whole of Scripture, that God Himself has provided a way of salvation and eternal life for all who trust in His Son Jesus for their salvation, and thereby escape the wrath of God that is due for their sins. As David said earlier, the wrath of God is not a topic that we tend to like to talk about very much. But you would be surprised at how much the scriptures have to say about the wrath of God. Even the Psalms, as David mentioned, um, mention the wrath of God over and over again. Now last Sunday, we looked at verses 16 and 17 which tell us that the gospel, the teaching of the good news of salvation provided by God through His Son Jesus, will deliver everyone who believes. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As we have seen, Paul began this letter with an emphasis on the power of God to save. Now, starting in today's passage, he begins to explain what we are saved from, or who we are saved from. Last Sunday, I mentioned being set free from bondage to sin, to the flesh, to Satan, and to death. And today, we will add, set free from the wrath of God that we deserve. In fact, from today's passage all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul will be describing why all mankind so desperately needs the gospel in order to escape the wrath of God that is due for their sinfulness. This extended section on the sinfulness of humanity will then be followed by a section explaining how the Son of God provides salvation for all who believe. So today, we'll begin to look at the spiritual condition of all of humanity apart from the salvation that Jesus has provided. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of our text. Romans chapter 1. Verses 18 through 23. This is God's word for us. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known, excuse me, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, 
have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. May God bless the reading of his word to us. You may be seated. The very idea of a wrathful God goes against the thinking of fallen human nature. And it's even a stumbling block for some professing Christians. We have to admit that much of the preaching and teaching of our time focuses on a God of love, on the abundant life and the blessings found in Christ and the future blessings that God has in store for his beloved children. Now, all of those things may be true, and Paul will write of them later in this very letter. But Paul here also deals with what we have been saved from. The wrath of God that was due for our sins. For Paul, fear of the wrath of God and eternal condemnation was the primary motivation that he offered for coming to Christ. It was the first reason to be motivated to call upon Christ for salvation. We know this by examining Paul's preaching throughout the book of Acts. He was determined that everyone should understand the reality of being under God's wrath for their sins before he offered them the way of escape from it. Now this approach makes both logical and theological sense, doesn't it? A person cannot fully appreciate the amazing grace of God until they can see their own depravity and need for God's amazing grace in Christ. We cannot fully appreciate God's forgiveness until we understand our need for forgiveness, our own ungodliness, our own unrighteousness. Now, the umbrella term for ungodliness and unrighteousness is sin. And the Bible teaches us that all sin, every sin, offends God, harms humanity, and earns the wrath of God. Earns it and deserves it. John Murray describes God's wrath in this way. Quote, Wrath is the holy revulsion of God's holy being against that which is in contradiction to his holiness. The word wrath, orge in the Greek, refers to a settled determined indignation, not the momentary, emotional, and often uncontrolled anger of human beings. Close quote. So wrath 
is God's response to any ungodliness, unrighteousness found in a human being. The timing of God's wrath is seen in the present tense form of the verb here in our text, meaning that his wrath is continually being revealed. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Apocalypto in the Greek. Present tense verb has the basic meaning of uncovering or bringing to light or making known. So there is an ongoing revelation of God's wrath. We could say this, that God's wrath has been revealed in the past, but it is also being revealed in the present. Robert Haldane writes of the past revelation of God's wrath. Listen to what he says. The wrath of God was revealed when the sentence of death was first announced in the garden. The earth cursed and man driven out of the earthly paradise. And afterward, by such examples as those of the worldwide flood, the destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, by fire coming from heaven, but especially by the reign of death throughout the world. But above all, the wrath of God was revealed from heaven when the Son of God came down to earth to manifest the divine character. And when that wrath was displayed in his sufferings and death in a manner more awful than that of all previous displays of God's wrath against sin. Close quote. So when we think of biblical examples of God's wrath being poured out, I mean, usually the first thing that comes to mind is the worldwide flood, where all human beings, millions, died except for the eight that God chose to save. Or we think of God bringing fire down upon Sodom and Gomorrah. But Robert Haldane says the best example of God's wrath being poured out was the wrath he poured out on his own son for us. Those are all past examples of God's wrath being revealed. But what are the continued revelations of God's wrath? Well, these include both the voice of conscience and the fact that moral evil produces both suffering and death. Think about it. Every single death reminds us of the consequences of sin and of the wrath of God towards sinners. Remember, death is a result of sin. Before sin entered the world, there was no death. Death entered as a result of sin. So every time we see the passing of someone, or we see the passing of many, it's a reminder. God's wrath is real towards sin. But there is also a future component to God's wrath, which has been foretold by God, but has not yet been manifested by Him. 
That is the eternal conscious punishment for sin that awaits all of those who refuse the gospel, who refuse to call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. Paul describes this future wrath in brief in Romans chapter 2. Let me read to you Romans 2, 5, and 9. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek or non-Jew. So God's holy wrath has been revealed, is being revealed, and will be revealed on the last day and throughout all of eternity towards those who deserve it and who fail to trust in Christ for their salvation. Again, we all deserve it, but thanks be to God that we have a means of avoiding that wrath by trusting in His Son for our salvation. So why does all mankind deserve God's wrath? Well, the Apostle Paul begins to tell us reasons why the wrath of God is coming upon humanity. And he gives us two reasons in this next section. First, they refuse to acknowledge God, even suppressing the truth about God, And second, they refuse to worship God, but instead worship other things, committing idolatry. So it starts with the refusal to acknowledge God. Verses 19 and 20, let me read that to you again. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Paul begins speaking of what we call general revelation or natural revelation, which speaks of God revealing himself in nature, in creation. And Paul is very clear here. That God has shown to all mankind what can be known about him in his creation. Now, can they know everything there is to know about God simply through the creation? No. But they can know there is a God who is the creator, who is glorious. They can know those things. They can know his existence. They can know his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature. Paul tells us clearly, these things which can be made known about God have been clearly perceived by mankind ever since the creation of the world. So they are without excuse. They who? All of mankind, from Adam and Eve until now. Quite simply, God has revealed his existence, 
his power, his glory, his attributes to all of mankind. But what has mankind done? They constantly deny the existence of God and suppress the truth of his revelation to them. And note this, God's natural revelation of himself is not obscure or selective or observable by only a few. His revelation of himself through creation can be clearly seen by everyone. David describes it in this way in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there any words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out to the ends of the world. Whose voice? The voice of God's creation. The heavens themselves bear witness to the glory of God, their creator. We know this. Come on, folks. You cannot look up at the stars, the moon, the planets. Oh, last night Saturn was so bright. Right there below, off to the left and below the moon. The moon was almost full and Saturn was just shining. Right? And what does the world say about that? Oh, it just happened. You know, billions of years ago, there was this explosion. Well, what exploded? Well, I, we don't know. Nothing existed before that. But there was this explosion, and it threw all of this matter out, and the planets formed, and life began, and... Yeah. I just had a conversation with a couple of extremely intelligent men a few days ago who are into computer programming. The one person works for a company that does virtual reality games. Okay. The other guy just got back from Japan lecturing on AI. Okay, artificial intelligence. And I said to them, can you imagine, you know, the best, the best computers that man can make are nothing compared to the human brain. Oh, they can, they can solve an equation faster than your brain can. One equation. But give it a hundred things to do at once. And the brain is faster. We can multitask. Think about it. Just at this very moment. The images that your eyes are seeing. I'm seeing all of you. All of your faces. And guess what? I know who you are. In an instant. All of you. All at once. Right? Think of all the things that you're seeing right now. And your brain is processing all of that input. Instantaneously. And this just happened? Some slime came out of the water? And it formed into a brain? Come on folks. And so I asked these men that very question. I said, 
as amazing as all those computers are, someone had to build them, right? Somebody had to program them. And they're still working out the bugs, right? I said, what about the human brain? Didn't it have to have a designer? Didn't it have to have a programmer? And the response of one of the men was, I don't care. Doesn't matter to me. And I felt like saying to him, 100 years from now, it will. It wasn't the right setting at the moment. I'll pray that God gives me another opportunity. What has mankind done? They constantly deny the existence of God and suppress the truth of his revelation to them. The heavens themselves bear witness to God as our creator. And as I said, Paul referred to this evidence on several occasions as proof that God was the creator and the sustainer of life on this planet. To the Galatians in Lystra, he said this, quote, you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying you with food and gladness. Acts 14, verses 15 to 17. God is the one who not only created the world, but who sustains it. Amen? Every breath, a gift from God. Every heartbeat, a gift from God. In Him we live and move and have our very being. He holds all things together by the power of His Word. Later, in addressing the men of Athens, Greece, he said this, quote, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Why? That they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him. Acts 17 verses 24 to 27. So Paul and David agree that God's general revelation of himself through his creation should be enough for every human being to know and acknowledge God. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 21 in our text. Note once again, Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit acknowledges that they knew God, or at least what could be known about him through general revelation. But even that knowledge they suppressed and they refused to honor him or give thanks to him. The bottom line is this. 
Mankind does not want to honor God. Why? Because they don't want to be accountable to God. If they acknowledge God, then there is an accountability. And they don't want that. Human beings in their rebellion want to be their own God. Or they want to invent their own gods who they can then worship as they please. They can fashion the God that they desire to serve. And that's the second reason why God's wrath comes upon them. Their refusal to worship God. Look at verses 22 and 23. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You see, God created us to be his worshipers, to worship him, the creator and sustainer of the universe. All human beings were created with this capacity. That was God's design, that we would be worshipers. When human beings choose not to worship God, they will fill that void, that God-shaped vacuum, with something else. When people choose not to honor and worship God, they then turn to idolatry. Now, in Paul's day, people bowed before images of so-called gods that they had fashioned. As we know, Athens, Corinth, Rome, Ephesus, many other cities were filled with temples to the various gods of man's own imagination. Even today, over a billion people on this planet are Hindus, Buddhists, animists, or others who bow before man-made images that represent a God and worship them. But if we're going to be honest, most other people succumb to idols as well. Bowing down not to objects made of wood or stone, but to things like wealth, power, peace, pleasure, or fame. We hope that our devotion to these pursuits will be rewarded. These become metaphorical idols to those who live for them, to those whose lives are focused upon them. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul addresses this tendency in every one of us. Listen to what he writes, Colossians 3, 5. He says this, now remember, he's writing to the church Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which are idolatry. So our desires and passions, those things that we tend to strive for, can also become idols in our lives. Greed, the love of money, 
can easily function as an idol. Idols in this sense absorb our time, our attention, fill our thoughts, demand our affection, and lay down rules that we must follow in order to obtain them. Jesus warned against money becoming an idol. Remember that? He told his disciples this, quote, No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. Matthew 6.24 That can't be any more clear, folks. That money can be an idol. Tim Keller summarizes the way that idols harm the idolater in his book, The Reason for God. He writes this, If you center your life and identity on your spouse or partner, oh, can you make your marriage an idol? Oh, yes. Absolutely. If you center your life and identity on your spouse or partner, you will be emotionally dependent Jealous and controlling. Second, if you center your life and identity on your family and children, anybody make their children idols? Oh, yes. You will try to live your life through your children until they resent you or have no self of their own. If you center your life and identity on your work and career, you will become a driven workaholic. And if your career goes poorly, you will develop a deep sense of loss and depression. If you enter your life and I, if you center your life and identity on money and possessions, you will be eaten up by worry and jealousy about money, and you will never have enough. A multimillionaire was once asked, how much is enough? And his answer, a little bit more. Keller goes on to say that religion and morality can be idols as well. That's right. Religion can be an idol. Those who meet their moral standards become proud and self-righteous, while those who fall short are plagued with guilt and shame. In Paul's day, Greco-Roman culture promoted idolatry, superstition, and Immoral deities. Literal idols still exist in Eastern religions such as Buddhism. We in the West may seem more sophisticated, but idols such as power, fame, relationships, and wealth are just as empty and dangerous as empty images of Buddha. Make no mistake. Every one of us are prone to idolatry in one form or another. Every one of us. John Calvin wrote that humans' desire for a tangible deity makes every human heart a perpetual factory of idols. Think about that. Paul makes it clear to us that God will pour out his wrath upon those who worship other gods, little g. Most of the time, he reveals his wrath indirectly by giving people up to do whatever they please to their shame. This is a fitting judgment for people who consider themselves to be wise 
but become fools. They are allowed to go their own way and reap the consequences of their choices, which include divorces, jealousy, rivalry, even suicides. Others seem to be successful and perfectly content, but make no mistake, a day of wrath is coming for them as well when God's judgment will be poured out upon all who refuse to acknowledge Him, all who refuse to trust on His Son for salvation and worship and glorify Him with their lives. But God can also open our blinded eyes and deliver us from our own sinful practices and idolatry through the power of the gospel leading us to salvation. Paul started this letter with the gospel. And as I mentioned earlier, following this section of his letter that explains why mankind deserves the holy wrath of God, he will once again present and explain the gospel to them and call men everywhere to repent and believe in Christ. Biblical repentance is required of all who seek the salvation that God has provided for us. Make no mistake, we are called to repent. And repentance is much more than simply regrets or sorrow for our sin. Biblical repentance is to say, I have sinned against God, my Creator. I turn from my sin and ask Him to forgive my sin through the sacrifice that His Son Jesus made on my behalf. And in so doing, I acknowledge Jesus as both Savior and as my Lord. I now pledge my allegiance to Him and obey Him and follow Him, so help me God. And I can only do that because God helps me to do so. As we sing in that song, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Only the gospel, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, can we be saved from the wrath of God that is due for our sins. Only by putting faith and trust in Christ as the one who died and took the wrath of God that was due for our sins can we be set free from the chains of bondage to sin and death. As we sing, my chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. How wonderful that is to know that those bonds of sin and shame have been broken. Those chains have been broken. In one of his later letters, Paul writes about this to the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, listen to a few verses. We give thanks to God always for all of you. Paul, again, writing to the Thessalonians, speaking of them. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you 
because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. You received the word with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You turned to God, that's repentance, from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So God provides the gospel, a special revelation of himself to all of those who hear and receive it and who believe and trust in Jesus. And he frees us from the wrath to come. How did Jesus achieve this deliverance from God's wrath for us? Well, you know, because we celebrated it today by taking our place on that cross, that old rugged cross, and paying the penalty for us, taking upon himself the wrath of God that was due for my sin. That was the key to my finally becoming saved. When I was a child, I knew there was a God. I grew up in a God-fearing family. We considered ourselves to be Christians. At Christmas, we celebrated the birth of God's son, born of a virgin. I believed Jesus was God's son. At Easter, we celebrated the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I truly believed that Jesus was God's son, that he died on a cross. He was buried. On the third day, he rose again. I mean, anybody that didn't believe that were stupid, as far as I was concerned. How could you not believe that? We celebrate it every year, right? So was I a Christian? <laughs> no, not at all. I had head knowledge. But in my heart, I was not wanting to obey God, submit to God. Jesus was just a historical figure who had done what he had done. But in that Sunday school classroom at 13 years old, when that teacher in broken English explained to me, broken English because it was a Hispanic church, the services were in Spanish. She was teaching a class of all Hispanic. I was there with my cousins, and I didn't speak very good Spanish. She didn't speak very good English. But she managed to explain to me that Jesus didn't just die on a cross and was buried, but that my sins are the cause of his death, that my sins were transferred to him and the wrath of God that was due for my sins was poured out on him. That's why he died on the cross. To pay the penalty for my sins. And I was a sinner. Let me tell you. And that broke me. To know that those sins that I was committing added to the suffering of the Son of God.
Paul, later in this letter, in Romans chapter 5, will write these words that you know so well. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. At 13, I couldn't imagine being crucified, dying in that way. At 67, I can't imagine being crucified or dying in that way. That God himself would do that for me, that changed everything. Everything. Every one of us were born into trespasses and sins. Every one of us deserved the wrath of a holy God to be poured out upon us for our sins, for our rebellion, for our idolatry, for our failures to honor God or give thanks to Him. Every one of us are without excuse. But God. The good news of the gospel is that by repenting, turning from our self-centered, sinful ways, and putting our faith and trust in Christ, we too can be delivered from the wrath of God that we are due, and instead experience His love poured out upon us, poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We can experience His grace, His mercy, His forgiveness. All of this ours in Christ. Every one of us who have experienced this deliverance now have the express responsibility to warn others of the wrath that is to come upon them and the glorious, gracious means of forgiveness that is found in the gospel of Christ. May the word of our Lord and the gospel of God's own Son be ever in our hearts, and may it be often on our lips as we tell others that they too can be set free from the judgment that is to come. May God bless us and use us as his faithful witnesses. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, again, I just thank you for this opportunity today to celebrate you, to acknowledge you, to sing praises to you, to thank you, Father God, for not only being just, which you are, but also for being the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. And you provided that justification for us by sending your son to this earth to live a perfect sinless life, the life we could not live, and therefore to die in our place, taking our sin upon himself, paying the ultimate price for those sins. And Father God, by your grace, you opened our blind eyes to these truths so that we would see you for who you truly are. 
and we would worship you and glorify you. So, Father God, help us to continue to worship you and glorify you, but help us also to continue to be your witnesses, to tell others of the salvation that is provided through your Son. We pray that many more would be saved from the wrath that is coming. We give you thanks and praise for all these things in Jesus' name.